Welcome to Whole and Holy, the Bethel Seminary podcast. In this episode, I'm delighted to be able to introduce Dr. John Dunn. John is the assistant professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary. John grew up in Las Vegas, of all places, and he then did a, a PhD in uh, St. Andrews with Professor N.T. Wright. He did his work on the book of Galatians. And when he's not studying the book of Galatians, he's a coffee aficionado. So he's well known for his, uh, his love of coffee and, and a specific kind of, of coffee. And he's also really into Harry Potter and other aspects of things. So John, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, glad to be here. Well, let's dive in and, and have a, a conversation the the New Testament, I think it's fair to say, hasn't changed since the closing of the canon. That is, there are no no new books have been added to it, so the New Testament hasn't changed. But our understanding of the New Testament has changed and continues to to change. That's why people become professors and want to continue to to study that. So, what are some things that you can share with us that have been significant develops developments in the study of the New Testament over the last uh, few years? One or two kinds of things that you think will be particularly important for our listeners to be aware of as they're preaching and teaching and using the New Testament in their ministries. Right. Well, one of the um, you know big buzzy topics of the last several years uh, has been the new perspective on Paul, and kind of what precipitated that was uh, a number of discoveries like the Dead Sea Scrolls and 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 things like that that have um, kind of uh, broadened our awareness of what uh, Second Temple Judaism was like. And E.P. Sanders, who famously wrote Paul and Palestinian Judaism, which contributed to the new perspective on Paul, as was sort of um, articulated by N.T. Wright and James Dunn and others, um, you know, that book came out in 1977, and so it's been uh, quite a bit of time. It's still a, a kind of a buzzy and popular topic, but there's been some uh, recent developments that I think are really exciting and interesting, particularly a book by John Barclay uh, called Paul and the Gift, which was published in 2015 by Erdman's. And that book, I think, has really been a game changer. It has really captivated a lot of New Testament scholars' uh, imagination, and I think it's a very fruit, fruitful book. And essentially what he does is he takes a look at the nature of gift-giving in the ancient world and highlights that um, our conceptions of grace have not been entirely precise in, in terms of how we go about talking about what Paul meant by grace or what you know other authors in, in the Bible meant by grace. And I think what's particularly interesting about that is ever since E.P. Sanders, we have just been debating, you know, what, what did Paul mean by works of the law? What are works of the law all about? And we have carried on going about this conversation as if we understand the other side of the equation, hmm. grace. And I think what's amazing about this book, Paul and the Gift, is that it really calls us to take a step back and say, let's clarify what we mean by grace. And uh, it's just a, it's, it's a game changer. It's definitely a paradigm shifting book. It really is kind of, you know, if, if you want to kind of in broad brush strokes kind of uh, talk about the influential paradigm-shifting books of New Testament scholarship. 1977, Paul and Palestinian Judaism was a major one, and it, it, it almost seems like you could tell the story as the next book being Paul and the Gift. Hmm. Well, I want to dive into that a little bit and talk about that book. You introduced me to it, and I've interacted with it some, but uh, I want to do that. But maybe you could help us to refresh our, our, leader, our, our readers' uh, memories a little bit 
as to what the new perspective on on Paul is, it's somewhat controversial. Uh, and so, what is the new perspective? What what was Sanders doing yeah. that Barclay is is responding to? And then I want to talk about you know what this what Barclay is doing and what that means for people who are really trying to put the New Testament into practice and follow Jesus. Right. Well, ever since the Reformation, um, Pauline scholarship uh, especially has has grown with this sort of um, idea that, you know, Second Temple Jews, you know, the Jews of, of the time of the New Testament, uh, especially for this, for this conversation, um, were legalistic, and they thought they could earn their salvation, and they thought that, uh, you know, law obedience is how, you know, um, God would ultimately save them in, in the end. And that's, that's what Paul is really concerned with, is, you know, critiquing this idea that they could earn their salvation or that uh, sure. the law functioned in that way. And what Sanders did was Sanders... Um, Try to look at all the primary sources, and at this point, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls had been out for for a few decades, and so um, he he reengaged this conversation and and tried to demonstrate, you know what, actually, grace is all over Second Temple Judaism, mm-hmm. and so we've been operating with a caricature, and and largely what what Sanders uh, would say is that um, what what we've realized is that. Martin Luther's uh, critique of medieval Catholicism, uh, however right it may be, and I, I would say it was you know on the right track. Nevertheless, what Sanders would say is that he basically um, conflated Second Temple Jews and medieval Catholics mm. in such a way to where it was an anachronistic blending. So he, so what Luther saw in Paul's critique of works of the law and 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 um, that whole conversation, uh, he basically. Um, sort of conflated what was going on in medieval Catholicism mm. with indulgences and these sorts of things. And Sanders has sort of um, tried to provide some clarity there to say, okay, we, we, we shouldn't assume that Second Temple Jews were medieval Catholics. And, sure. and so he, he, he tries to provide an articulation of how grace functioned on its own terms, in, in terms of the pattern of religion that we see in Judaism of the time. And what he tries to demonstrate is, yeah, grace is everywhere. We see grace all over the place. Uh, a primary example of this is, you know, you think of the Exodus. God delivers his people, and then he provides the law, right? So there's this gracious context. The covenant precedes the expectation, like that kind of dynamic. And like, like I said earlier, we have sort of carried on then in the wake of that observation, uh, trying to understand what really... Paul was critiquing when he was upset with uh, works of the law in terms of this, we're justified by faith, not by works of the law. And we've carried on in this conversation. And what Barclay has done is, is he said, yes, grace is everywhere in Second Temple Judaism, but it's not everywhere the same. We can Mm. be more precise when we talk about grace. And essentially for Sanders, what grace was um, in terms of what he articulated as grace, was really th- this notion that Barclay calls the priority of of God's grace and God's gift, that God acts first. And yes, that's an important dynamic, but it's not the only way that grace mm-hmm. can be configured. And that's really the precision. Barclay identifies six different ways that grace can be configured. He uses the language of perfection, which is the idea of taking an idea and drawing it out to an extreme. And and he, he identifies these six different ways 
things about grace that that people have really sort of meant in different contexts. You know, hmm. for example, in Protestant circles, we tend to define grace as unmerited favor, sure, and we tend to think in terms of incongruity. The idea that God and His gift um, is incongruous with us as sinners, right? Sure. So, the, so the the recipient of the gift are not worthy like of the gift. A wretch like me. Yes, you know, exactly. The amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Exactly. Say the wretch like me. Exactly. It, amazing grace is all about the incongruity of God's gift. And in Protestant circles, that is a major emphasis. And we can see it in Paul, of course. But the idea of these perfections is not that... Um, you have to sort of pick one. It's that different things can be at, in, at play, and and any combination of them can be at play. Incongruity just happens to be a very common Protestant articulation. Uh, we mentioned priority already as sort of being the Sanders way of looking at it. There's also what Barclay calls the superabundance of the gift. That is, the gift in and of itself, the gift per se, can be quite exceptional. Mm-hmm. So like if I got a yacht for Christmas, <laughs> that would be a superabundant gift, right? Um, another another perfection would be the singularity of the gift. And, and this idea is that really the, the gift giver is only kind of understood in terms of being a gracious uh, gift giver. So you think in terms of like liberal Protestantism, mm-hmm. uh, highlighting, you know, that God is love, you know, kind of like from First John, but maybe missing the fact that he's also light, which mm-hmm. First John also says, or like God is a God of grace, but he's also a God of, of justice as sure. well. So, so um, singularity kind of, uh, you might say, flattens um, the, you know, who God is in some ways or, or, or fixates on a, an aspect of, 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 of who he is uh, in, in sort of um, by removing the, the other aspects of who God is. Um, another, another perfection would be the efficacy of the gift. So, for example, if I need to get to work on time, um, a good gift might be rollerblades hmm. or a bike. Or a bus pass, or how a car. About, I was going to say a car, how and, about and that? a car is a more efficacious gift, right? It, it's yeah. going to get me to work on time uh, more efficaciously than you know rollerblades, sure, right? So, so that's the efficacy idea. Um, and in reformed uh, circles, Calvinistic circles, that's going to be a, a, a highlighted, um, sure. Uh, aspect of grace. The incongruity, as we mentioned, um, you know, the, the discrepancy between the gift and the, and the recipients of the gift. And then finally, the last perfection is what Barclay calls the non-circularity of the gift. And this is the idea, uh, when we think of gifts in present day Western culture, we think of uh, no strings attached, mm-hmm. we, this idea of a pure gift, right? You give me a gift and there's no expectation of return. And that's the idea of non-circularity. And so in some Protestant circles, um, will think of God's grace as something that has no expectation of return in terms of this kind of gift exchange. There is no gift exchange. It's kind of unilateral. Mm-hmm. God gives his grace to us, and that's sort of the end of the day. Yeah. And you can see how that can lead to things like Lord, the Lordship Salvation controversy, where Christ can be your Savior, and then maybe subsequently your Lord. And that that sort of gap or the fact that there's even a distinction there uh, might be precipitated on this idea of non-circularity, that, yeah. that, that there is no expectation of return. But what Barclay does uh, very well, he kind of does this kind of history of ideas sort of survey, and he demonstrates that it really wasn't until Immanuel Kant that this idea of a pure gift became a popular notion, hmm. this idea that um, gifts were meant to be a kind of no-strings-attached thing. 
And since Kant, you know, philosophers have sort of recognized that actually this idea of a gift is kind of impossible. Hmm. So, so for example, in, in, in sort of your everyday life, imagine a few scenarios. Like if um, it's Christmas time and your siblings are going to get you gifts, you know, does the thought not cross your mind that you need to get them a gift of comparable value mm-hmm. to what they're going to sure. get you, right? Right. Or if you imagine receiving a gift from a coworker that, you know, maybe you're good acquaintances with, but you just, you know, you didn't get them a gift for their birthday. Right. The thought might cross your mind, oh shoot, I should have, or, okay, I need to figure out when their birthday is. So I make sure to get them something for their birthday, right? right. There is this, the tension and dynamic or like a wedding is another great example. Sure. When you're invited to a wedding, it doesn't say on the invitation, you're only welcome if you bring a gift. Right. But the registry is provided as a not so (laughs) subtle reminder, right? Sure. There is this expectation culturally that we would show up to a wedding with gifts, right? Right. And and so this this idea of a pure gift is really not a functioning um, concept that is actually recognizable in real Hmm. life. And, And actually... It's not a historical reality. It's a post-Kantian mm. reality. When we go back to the ancient world, gifts were given with the expectation of a gift exchange because gifts initiated and maintained relationships. Can um, I interrupt for a second and yeah. just say, I'm assuming by that, though, that it's not the expectation that they be exactly reciprocal. Exactly. Uh, they, they be the same in kind or same in degree. That is not at all uh, sure. necessarily the expectation. So, for example, when we translate this into divine gifts, right, that God gives us his grace, the idea of a, a gift exchange or any kind of reciprocity is in no way um, symmetrical, right? Uh, the yeah. gift of Christ is is um, a super abundant gift, right? It is not uh, something that we try to um, uh, earn or deserve or, or sort of, um, you know, meet in kind or degree. Um, but the idea of not returning gifts back to God uh, in the ancient world, that's that would suggest you don't want a relationship. Well, I think that's that's what jumps to my mind as we talk about this, is I think about my own, I have five kids. Yeah. And so when we give gifts to our kids at Christmas or on their birthday, we it's, it's not an equal relationship in the mm-hmm. sense that we expect reciprocity, exact reciprocity in terms of value or kind or anything right. like that. Right. But when we give, it's not, and it's not conditional with mm-hmm. the sense of saying, I will love you, uh, mm-hmm. Only if you respond, right. or I, I give you this gift to earn your love, or or that we give gifts because we love them. Mm-hmm. But I think there is the expectation that it nurtures the relationship, yes. and it and that so it doesn't have to be a response of reciprocity, mm-hmm. you know, giving back a, an actual gift, but it's a it's a response, yeah. and I think that's the that's the idea that I take from my reading of Barclay is right. that, is that this is, that that's an important part of it, that right. there's a, a response that is expected. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think that makes our Protestant sensibilities nervous because it it's like, well, is that, a, are we then working to earn God's favor right. or is it, is it this transactional kind of a thing? Mm-hmm. But I think when we put it in the context of relationship, yep. it's, it's a response that's expected, yep. not a, an exact reciprocity or a transaction or a balance sheet kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Have I read him right? Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's right. I think when we put it in that relational context, um, it should uh, put our Protestant sensitivities at ease. But the beauty of this is how holistic and integrated it is. Because I think one of the things that we've struggled with as Protestants is sort of 
not being able to articulate at, at very well at, at, at times how justification relates to sanctification, hmm. right? How conversion relates to discipleship. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's what, you know, leads to things like the Lordship Salvation Controversy. And so what this gift dynamic does beyond the world of biblical studies and Pauline studies is it, it helps us think about the Christian life in some really helpful ways. So going back to the issue of what does Paul mean by works of the law, right? We've debated what works of the law means, assuming we understand what grace is, right? One of the things that's wonderful about this book is it, it helps us realize one thing that work, works of the law doesn't refer to is circularity. Mm-hmm. Paul's not critiquing circularity. And we, mm-hmm. we, we should be able to recognize that just from reading his letters um, as, as wholes in and of themselves, that they, they do articulate this Christian life that is, um, you know, full of this kind of uh, reciprocity in terms of this, uh, you know, the spirit is producing the fruit of the spirit and these right. sorts of things. And, and, and um, there is this Expectation. There is discipleship. There is sanctification, and so when we when we look at what works of the law are, there there may still be debates, you know, about kind of the fine tunings of what exactly Paul is referring to in terms of like is this a kind of nationalistic thing? Is this a, a way to box out Gentiles right from from being in the people of God? We can debate the finer points of that, but I think one of the things that this conversation about grace is helpful for is is realizing oh. It would be very anachronistic, very out of sync with the time and the culture for Paul to be critiquing circularity Mm -hmm. itself. Um, Because, again, that idea of grace meaning non-circularity, that's a post-Kantian development, Mm. you know. Well, and I think as as an Old Testament specialist, I can't help but add, I think that's an Old Testament perspective that, you know, as Sanders is right to point out, Mm -hmm. that... Torah is given after the deliverance right. from Egypt, the Exodus, and they're already the people of God right. at the time of, of the Exodus. So Torah is not given as a way for them to earn relationship with God. Right. Really, it's, I would argue, it's a, it's a way of maintaining identity and mm-hmm. it's a way of, in a sense, showing gratitude to God. Right. It's, so it's that response yep. to a gift. And, mm-hmm. and another way, I argue that Torah is a gift in itself. Yeah, right, it's, it's, exactly. it's, it's instruction in, right. in how to live, that sort of thing. But it's, it's not a, the understanding is that here's how you're going to earn relationship with God. They're already in relationship with mm-hmm. God. It's how do you live out relationship mm-hmm. with God? And I think that's where, as a, an Old Testament specialist, yep. I've always struggled in a sense because I, I see Paul as doing something different from how many New Testament oh, scholars sure. see what Paul is doing. Because sure. I, I don't see that that totally you know circularity that I, yeah. I see Torah obedience is a way of living out relationship with God. It's an expression of gratitude to mm-hmm. who God is, but in the context of relationship right. in the way just as I give gifts to my kids and, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. So that's that's how I've always seen it as an Old Testament specialist. So I guess right. I resonate with what you're yeah, saying a right, lot because right. I see it as biblical, right. that is Old Testament as well as right. New Testament. And that's another that's another beautiful thing about this um, is that it helps us put our Bibles together because another thing that we can often struggle with is how does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament, right? And we might think that there's different patterns of religion, right? Where it's like, well, in the Old Testament, they were saved by, you know, uh, fulfilling the law. And in the New Testament, we reject that idea and it's all grace. And of course, that is a horrible caricature, but it's this often, you know, the thing that you hear in, right. in um, lay settings, popular settings, um, where it it's 
it's it's hard to articulate how exactly the Old Testament relates to the New because of these um, dichotomies that we often work with, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, grace and and law, or, or or you know, works and and faith or whatever. Um, and so we struggle with James as a result, of course, right? And yeah. and I think what this does is it helps us put our Bibles together, and it helps us. Um, uh, be more robustly Protestant, e- even um, in articulating uh, the nature of grace. I mean, you know, the, so the incongruity of grace is is something that we um, relish in, right? We sing hymns about it, sure. um, and just being a little bit more precise that the 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 expectation of return uh, and and this kind of gift giving and relationship doesn't nullify the incongruity. That's still part of this, right? Right. And, um, if you're more reformed, it doesn't nullify the efficacy, right? Because what you're saying is that the return is part of the Spirit's work, right? So that the right. Spirit is actually the gift uh, that we receive, and the works that we do are part of that gift. Uh, it's part of this uh, law fulfillment that God is working within us uh, right. as part of the gift, right? So um, these things are not um, uh, sort of um, mutually exclusive. They're not. They're not working at cross purposes there they can work together and we can but just being precise in terms of seeing how when people talk about grace they they tend to be highlighting one or two hmm. of those things over against other things and that is really helpful i think sure and and uh can can bring a lot of clarity that's really helpful um i want to i want to shift our our conversation a little bit now to thinking about these ideas, I think, are, are really important and have significant implications, as you said. So what, what would be the kind of cash value of this, uh, as you see it, mm-hmm. for folks, you know, our listeners are in ministry, pastors, teachers, people, ministry leaders of, of various sorts. So what, what's kind of the takeaway, the cash value of this for them? What, what difference does this make? I mean, to some extent, you could argue this is a conversation that only academics could love, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but I think it matters for, yeah. for ministry leaders. So yeah. what do you see as kind of the, the takeaway, the cash yeah. value of yes. this? Well, I think the, you know, some of the terminology is, is admittedly a bit academic, and, and Barclay's book is you know, a 600-page book that is really comprehensive. And so, yes, there, there is definitely this part that, uh, part of this that is very academic and intellectual, but I really see this as something that if this can trickle down, if this can, um, you know, reach its way into the pulpits and into Bible studies and into um, small groups, that um, it really has potential to kind of um, revolutionize the way that we think about the Christian life. Because, like I, like I've said uh, already, there are so many dichotomies that we operate mm-hmm. with. You know, the New and the Old Testament, law and grace, and and you know, faith and works and um, and 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 grace as being this pure gift with no expectation of return and and I think what this what this book does and and if, if we were able to articulate this uh, in our our church context and in our um, discipleship context it can it can help us see how we're not speaking out of both sides of our mouth mm-hmm. this is an integrated holistic approach to the Christian life that is thoroughly biblical, consistent the whole way through. And, um, we have kind of, um, we have kind of, uh, understood second temple Judaism in a particular way because of what Paul says about works of the law, which has then made us 
have a hard time reading our Old Testaments. Right. But see, the thing is, it's not that it's not that uh, Paul was wrong or whatever. It's that we we have kind of um, missed a bit of the nature of his uh, critique. Mm-hmm. It's not um, it's not circularity. It's 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 uh, it's it's you know this. I would say largely because it is a Jewish way of life that what what Paul was primarily concerned with are the things that can box out Gentiles, things mm-hmm. like circumcision, dietary restrictions, Sabbath keeping. Um, I think that was his primary focus. I mm-hmm. think works of the law refers to more than than those things, but I think that was the sharp edge that was creating the controversy in Galatia, for example, mm-hmm. and in other places. Um, and I think, I think when we are uh, able to recognize this gift dynamic that was common in the ancient world, we can more readily see how, you know, that, 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 uh, Paul's letters flow and, and, and are, you know, sort of on target the whole way through, as opposed to kind of the common, uh, the old way of thinking of kind of, we've got the indicative and then we get the imperative or we've got the, um, uh, you know, the front half is, uh, exposition of, you know, some theme. And then the, the second half is like application and right. actually seeing that, no, there's, these things are more integrated and holistic and, and, and it, it, we don't need to operate with those dichotomies and those bifurcations. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I think about what you said before, both a little bit earlier and, and just now about, bring our Bibles together and yeah. how, how important that mm-hmm. is. Because I think, again, speaking as an Old Testament specialist, but one of the great tragedies is I think the church has impoverished itself mm-hmm. because of our lack of familiarity with the Old Testament. And that largely is because we say, we recognize it as a dichotomy. We right. say, well, that's that's Old Testament. Yep. This is New Testament. Right. That's law. This is grace. Yeah. And, and actually, I, I maintain that Torah is a manifestation right, of grace, right, right. And, and that grace is on every page of the Bible, mm-hmm. Old and New Testament. Right. And so I see if, if from a New Testament perspective, this can sort of rehabilitate the, the whole of Scripture for us, then I think we're really, and I'm picking up on a phrase you used, but I think then we're really living into our mm-hmm. Protestantism and and in the sense of, you know, scripture alone and mm-hmm. as, as evangelical Protestants, you right. know, for, for us here at Bethel and, yep. and many of our listeners, where we say, you know, scripture is our sole authority for all matters of faith and, and practice. Mm-hmm. Well, then we're, we're recovering the whole of scripture to be able to do that and, and are able to live much more abundantly, much more fruitfully mm-hmm. in, in all kinds of ways because we have a better understanding of this and, and we don't have to just simply reject significant parts of, of our Bibles yep. because of what we think Paul is doing. And I, I love Paul. Right, I'm, I'm, right. I'm delighted that for yep. all that Paul says, yep. properly understood. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean to be arrogant and think I'm the only one who understands Paul, sure, but, yeah. but I think uh, I, I'm excited about that aspect of it because yeah. I think that then does offer real promise for increased fruit and mm-hmm. and abundance in our discipleship mm-hmm. we we grow in our relationship with Christ when we when the whole counsel of God is yep. really brought to bear right, right. in in our walk with him mm-hmm. exactly 
Well, we're almost out of time. Uh, let me just quickly ask if you have any resources that you can suggest. We'll put them in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that maybe this book, yeah. uh, oh, <laughs> Paul and the Gift, is yeah. one that, uh, that you would recommend. Is there anything else you can think of, uh, articles, websites, anything that our listeners can check out that would kind of orient them to this or, or other new developments in the New Testament? I think we're going to have to have you back for more developments because uh, we've talked about just this one. Right. Well, absolutely. This book has to be um, on there. And I think it, you know, it is, it is a bit more academic. It's not the most academic book out there, but it may be a little bit, you know, um, uh, of a more technical read for, for some, but I do think it's well worth the slog. If, if you find it to be a slog, I found it to be a page turner. I think it's a, a delightful book. Just so, so comprehensive. The breadth of the book is really stunning. Um, so I highly recommend that. And I think the utility of that book extends beyond what it has done, like I've mentioned. Um, and there's already been a number of studies that have taken some of the principles and sort of applied it to other contexts. I can think of a few offhand. I, I myself did that with a, a friend and colleague of mine. We um, applied this to conversations about Mormonism, hmm. right? What do Mormons mean when they talk about grace? Um, and in applying sort of these perfections of grace, right, the six that we talked about, we we had to supply one more because we realized in Mormon conversations it was kind of necessary, actually. And um, in applying that, we we sort of found, oh, wow, there's quite a bit of diversity, you know? And uh, it was really helpful because I think often in Protestant circles, we may tend to think like, oh, Mormons don't believe in grace. They believe that they're saved by their works. And that's a, a, a caricature that's very much wrong. And in applying this, we could say, well, what do they actually mean on their own terms about grace? And there's an interesting spectrum and array. So just providing some kind of descriptive clarity, especially for the purposes of interfaith dialogue, which is a big part of my uh, history and background. Um, So I think there are some studies that have applied this too, and you can already sort of see how fruitful this is for other other conversations as utility beyond um, biblical studies. I think um, uh, not in terms of grace so much, but just other kind of, um, resources that are helpful for the ancient world. Um, two in particular stand out. Um, the Bible Project is a really great, great yep. one. They've got cartoons, you know, that are really it's, helpful. It's uh, but they also have a podcast, and and so their conversations are really helpful. Another good one. It's a little bit more academic, but it's meant to be for um, the broader public. Is the uh, Bible Odyssey? It's uh, put out by um, SBL, so a number of um, SBL um, scholars. So it's not. Um, it's not the same kind of resource. Bible Project is more um, explicitly Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, Bible Odyssey is not, but it is a, um, a helpful resource, nevertheless, for understanding the ancient world. Mm. Um, and and so those two particularly come in mind. But of course, the main the main one in light of our conversation would be John Barclay's Paul yeah. and the Gift. I highly highly recommend that book. It's great. Well, thank you for that. And I, I just want to comment. It seems to me that when you talked about the application of the ideas of this book to look at Mormonism, I can imagine that you know, some of our listeners might be uncomfortable with that idea. It's mm-hmm. like, are you, are you trying to say when, when you say you know, Mormons don't believe in, in grace, are you trying to say that they're, that they're the same as us or, oh, or that right. sort of thing? And I, I would venture to say that's not what you're saying and that, uh, that really it's, it's understanding them on their own terms yes, so that yes. we can better engage yes. with them. Mm-hmm. Because if someone comes to us and says, well, you believe this right. and we don't, it's right. like, well, no, I don't. And right. so why, why do we give any credence to what mm-hmm. they're saying mm-hmm. at that point? So I can see where this could be really yes. valuable for, 
for that kind of dialogue mm-hmm. um, in order to, to be more effective in our witness. Yeah, and I think the, just to quickly tie a bow on that, because in the gospel God gives us himself, mm-hmm. we can't separate the gift from the gift giver. Mm-hmm. And so when we're having this conversation about, um, for example, uh, when Mormons talk about grace, if they sound more like a Protestant might, um, should that sort of, uh, uh, should that mean that, you know, oh, they're, they're closer to to, to being, you know, kind of traditionally Christian or something like that, or Protestant, should we be thrilled by this? I think uh, we need to put it in perspective and and realize that our, our conception of the gift giver is, mm. is so very different. Um, and if in the gospel God gives us himself, it really matters that the gift giver is is different. And, mm. and so that's, that's how great. I would frame that conversation. Yeah, that's that's great. Well, maybe that's a topic for another, yeah. uh, another episode of the, yep. of the podcast. John, thank you so much for for being a part of this episode. I really appreciate Absolutely. the conversation yeah. and your willingness to share that with um, with me and our and our listeners. This has been an episode of Whole and Holy, the Bethel Seminary podcast. Thank you for listening, and I encourage you to subscribe to this podcast. There'll be some instructions uh, at the end of how to do that. Coming up, we're going to have conversations about leadership with uh, Justin Irving and Mark Strauss. We're also looking at talking about transitions in ministry staff with a human resources expert, all in the hopes of serving the church. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to Whole and Holy. This podcast is a production of Bethel Seminary in collaboration with Bethel University's Office of Church Relations. Please share your feedback with us, including ideas you'd like to see in future episodes, by emailing us at wholeandholy at bethel.edu. Once again, that address is wholeandholy at bethel.edu. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.